Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. Okay, tell me the story of your coming to the story. Yeah, so it's actually kind of bizarre. I love checking the schedules of hackers' conferences. Jessica Bruder is a freelance writer for The Atlantic, and she's not a tech reporter. I am not a coder. I'm not super, super tech savvy. The reason she likes hackers' conferences is because of the kinds of people who attend them. My beat has essentially become subcultures. Welcome to Hope 2020. There's so much going on over the nine days of Hackers on Planet Earth 2020. Hope seeks to build a vibrant, supportive community of hackers. And you're here. Welcome. There's always somebody doing something really smart for the Hacker Halftime Show or something. (laughs) We have a talent show. Hackers got talent. So I remember I was flipping through their sessions online, and it was just what you would expect at a hacker's conference. Privacy. Defending your system through binary recompilation. Coding. Resistance to the NSA level, global adversaries. A surveillance state. And then. I'm very happy to welcome Maggie Mayhem on Hackers in a Post-Roe versus Wade World. Randomly, out of nowhere, Abortion. I believe that abortion is information technology. So this is a talk that will be very frank about abortion in all kinds of contexts. So It was this session presented by a woman who called herself Maggie Mayhem, and she had this very Riot girl vibe. Dark eyeliner, big earrings, and she was talking about the criminalization of abortion. Since right now, people are looking for self-managed abortion, but that can be a really scary thing to hear. Self-managed abortion, isn't that a back alley abortion? Isn't that the wire hanger that we're all so afraid of? And in this case, in 19- When I was growing up in the mid-90s, the idea that I had was when it came to abortion, it was either the clinic, and the clinic was safe and warm, or it's the coat hanger, which is the back alley, which is what happens when abortion is restricted. But... It just may be that self-managed abortion is the solution we need until we can actually secure legal rights. And I'm going to reassure you on why it might be okay. Um, There has always been a network of underground abortion. They eventually realized that abortion itself wasn't maybe as complicated as they thought it had to be. And she held up this thing I'd never seen before. The equipment looks simple. Basically, a jar with tubes. Which was, in essence, a DIY abortion device from the early 70s. It kind of looks like a home brewing or science fair project with these long, clear plastic tubes coming out. And it was based completely off of what doctors at the time would have been using. And you can find activists who are providing care using these right now in the United States. I'd never heard of a device like that. And I wondered, where did this thing come from? 
And I also wondered, what does this mean, given that Roe versus Wade could be overturned in June? What does this mean now? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They poison the law. Since before Roe versus Wade was decided, pro-abortion activists have used the cautionary tale of the coat hanger as an argument to make sure abortions are legal, safe, and accessible inside doctors' clinics. I think I still had the coat hanger in the clinic as, as poles in my brain when I started reporting this. But there have been people in this gray area in the middle who were working outside the medical establishment but not using coat hangers, who were actually performing safe, respectful abortions. And I think that was really news to me. This week on the show, while the country awaits a Supreme Court decision that could result in abortion being illegal in about half the country, reporter Jessica Bruder embeds in the abortion underground. I'm Julia Longoria. This is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country. So it sounds like Maggie Mayhem sent you down a bit of a rabbit hole. What did you learn about the history of abortion in our country? So to start, I hadn't even heard about the quickening. Have you heard of the quickening? No. It sounds like a film title, doesn't it? Um, Yes. (laughs) uh, But, you know, in the early days of America, when they were still following what had been British common law, when there weren't disposable pregnancy (laughs) tests around, uh, the idea was that there wasn't anything that would be legally recognized or treated as a fetus until the woman felt the first fetal movement, which would be about four to five months into pregnancy. So the the time that first kick comes, then there's something going on. And until the quickening, Hmm. it was perfectly legal for women to go out and pursue treatments to, to bring down the menses, as they called it. So early in the 19th century, you could go to a midwife, you could go to other traditional healers, and that was pretty uncontroversial. By mid-century, you've got newspapers with all these advertisements for things like Madame Durnette's lunar pills, and some of those commercial preparations could kill you. So some of the first laws set up to regulate abortion were really poison control measures aimed at those concoctions. They weren't there to make some sort of moral point. They were there to keep people from drinking stuff that might kill them. So when did social attitudes toward abortion start to change? Yeah, so it was around the 1860s that there was this shift in how abortion patients were perceived. There was a lot of racism and nativism going on at the time, stoking fears about white women having fewer children than immigrants and people of color. The anti-abortion leader, Horatio Storer, who was running the anti-abortion campaign, I mean, he literally asked whether the West would be, quote, filled by our own children or by those of aliens. And said, this is a question our women must answer. Upon their loins depends the future destiny of the nation. Wow. 
And Horatio Storer led the campaign against abortion for the newly organized American Medical Association. Wow, so the American Medical Association was organizing against abortion in this way. Yeah. At the time, doctors, who were just about all male, weren't the ones who were delivering babies or performing abortions. Midwives were. So the American Medical Association was trying to drive out competition, and they decided to campaign against abortion. And it worked. Within a generation, every single state had laws that criminalized or restricted abortion. Good evening. Tonight, the subject of abortion. The illegal termination of pregnancy has reached epidemic proportions in this country. Abortion will continue to be a critical problem, and for those involved, may call for desperate decisions that result in dangerous medical complications. So basically, when you have abortion becoming totally criminalized, it goes underground, which means some people are going to resort to really dangerous methods. The facts are astonishing. Hundreds of thousands of pregnant women unmindful of what may happen to them, secretly seek abortions. Common causes of abortion deaths were poisoning, and there were also complications from people introducing a foreign instrument into the uterus, something like the proverbial coat hanger. For them, there is a wide gulf between what the law commands and what they feel they must do. By 1965, botched abortions accounted for one in five maternal deaths. So around that time, activists started organizing to make abortion safer. They knew how horrific they could be if they were done in the absence of good information and help, and they wanted to change that. The dignity and control of your own body issue. So one of those activists was Carol Downer. Earlier this year, I went to L.A., and we ended up sitting on her porch and just chatting for hours. Today, she's 88 years old. But back when she was in her 30s, she had an abortion at an illegal clinic. This was in the early 60s, and Carol had already had four children. She'd separated from her husband. What kind of method was used when you got an abortion? The dilation and curatage. One of the most popular methods until then was dilation and curatage, which involves essentially scraping out the uterine walls. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, it was incredibly painful procedure. Sounds excruciating. And she had a really bad experience. It was painful. It was traumatic. And that got her on the path of wanting to make abortion safer, more accessible, more humane. Although she didn't really know where to start. I was a housewife. <laughs> I had no way of connecting to activists, especially in the feminist movement, except the abortion committee. She joined the abortion committee of the National Organization of Women in L.A. Because I had an abortion and had children, and I was very aware of what that was all about. So as part of an effort to educate herself, she started shadowing illegal abortion providers. And I was assigned the ex-military guy. This guy was a sexist pig, if there ever was one. And I was really appalled at some of the equipment that he used mm. and these women were just trembling there he's sitting back in his chair you know admiring their volvos uh. and just i mean it was just nasty you know it was really really bad now we knew the abortion biz yeah. we knew you took who you could get but there was one abortion provider that carol did feel she could learn something from 
His name was Harvey Carmen, and he was running an illegal abortion clinic in L.A. It was right next door to the Christian Science Reading Room. <laughs> what a trip. <laughs> and, and, and I was brought up Christian Science, too, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Now, the thing that was different about Harvey was that he had created a plastic cannula. The Carmen cannula. Which is essentially a straw that could be connected to a syringe for suction. This suction device was, in fact, a great improvement and much less pain and much less complications. It was a soft, plastic, flexible straw that could make a first trimester abortion much less traumatic than some other methods. He had a name, the non-traumatic abortion. They called it a lunch hour abortion because you could go in, get it done safely, and then go back to what you'd been doing beforehand. I mean, you can see the procedure that he's doing. This is something we could learn. So that sparked us to start paying more attention and becoming even more hands-on involved. The idea was, why shouldn't we know how to do that? Wouldn't that give pregnant people more autonomy than having to rely on a male-dominated medical system? When we first started, there was no manufactured Carmen candle. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. Harvey made his own. So in 1971, a friend of Carol's, who was part of the same feminist group, Lorraine Rothman, borrowed one of Carmen's devices and tried to figure out how to make a version of her own. What she did was just make a tube and then take a little razor blade and notch it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's your cannula. And built something they called the Delem, which was a mason jar, some aquarium tubing, a syringe to create a vacuum, and a cannula, which was what the person who was performing the abortion would carefully insert through the cervix. And essentially just created this device that could be used to safely empty the uterus. And they showed hundreds of women how to have safe, successful abortions in that way. The Delem is the same device I first saw at the Hackers Conference with Maggie Mayhem. What does Delem stand for? Yeah, well, in the beginning, they called it just a menstrual extraction kit, which gave it this you know, plausible deniability because the idea is, well, we don't know if we're pregnant. We want to get our periods over with in, you know, a half an hour rather than several days. That way, if they ever got accused of performing abortions, it could be, well, we didn't know. Hmm. So they did demonstrations, and a lot of it went over quite well. But then they met one doctor at a clinic who was just hostile to the whole idea of it and referred to what they were showing her as a dirty little machine and kind of turned her nose up at it, as in, like, how do you clean that dirty little machine? And uh, apparently it really cracked up these feminists, so they turned it around, decided to reclaim that, and among themselves started calling it the dirty little machine as an in-joke. They shortened that to DLM, and then that became DLM. Much later, they ended up pretty much disowning the idea that DLM ever stood for dirty little machine, because they wanted to be taken seriously. It had been this really sassy way of asserting themselves, to to call it that. And at this point, they just wanted people to know that they knew how to create a sterile environment, that when it came to hygiene, they meant business. Later, I'm told, Lorraine Rothman went on to tell people that DELM stood for Deliberate Emptying of the Menses. So Carol and Lorraine basically took it on tour. They called themselves the West Coast Sisters. They hopped on a Greyhound bus and over the course of six weeks went to 23 cities around the country 
giving people speculums. Uh, if you've ever been to a gynecologist, you know that's the tool that opens up access to the cervix. And they showed people how to use the DELM. I remember at the abortion demonstration, mm -hmm. these women are just absolutely blown away in a bad way. Oh, well, toe hanger abortions, right? That's all that's in their mind. Wow. They were getting green around the gills. I was afraid a couple of them were going to faint. So I said, well, maybe this will help. And I took the speculum, found a desk in the adjoining alcove, and invited people to come over and look at my cervix. Showing them how once you can access your cervix, you can do something like a menstrual extraction. Absolutely. They were enthralled. What we did was great because of our process. And the idea was that you would have a group of people who knew each other well and who were there for each other just to make the whole experience more communal, less traumatic. The other major story today, aside from the death of Lyndon Johnson and the hopes for peace in Vietnam, is the decision of the United States Supreme Court. And then in 1973... The Supreme Court today ruled that abortion is completely a private matter to be decided by mother and doctor in the first three months of pregnancy. The freedom to have an abortion is now legal in every state. The basic legal fight is in effect over. So when the Supreme Court legalized abortion across the country in 1973, it would have stood to reason that the DLM would disappear, right? I mean, nobody needs this anymore. Why keep that mason jar and aquarium tubing in your closet if uh, no one's ever going to need it? Well, we didn't expect patriarchy to give up. Um, we didn't have any illusions that Roe v. Wade would bring it. I think we all thought it would get turned around sooner. And we didn't think it was much below in the first place. And we thought abortion would not be governed by the law, period. <laughs> I've never done this on a beach before. Yeah, so I brought a bunch of stuff. Um, we have, like, aquarium tubing. Uh -huh. Instead, the DLM got handed down from generation to generation. But then the way you make it is very simple. Um, Which is how, a few months ago, I ended up on a beach in California learning how to build one. And then you want to take the syringe and attach it to this side. And it's, it's funny, I started thinking about the Dell-M as almost a bellwether for the level of abortion anxiety in America. Huh. Like, whenever it looks like something might happen to Roe, you see the Dell-M kind of creeping back into the press. The last thing to do is attach the cannula, which you wouldn't do until you're ready to use it. And then that's it, like, you've done it. After the break, the bellwether for abortion anxiety returns. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. 
Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. I'm Julia Longoria. This is The Experiment. Reporter Jessica Bruder stumbled upon an abortion underground, a group of activists who, for decades, have tried to take abortion out of the hands of lawmakers and empower people to take control of their own care. In the 1970s, some activists did this work with a device called the DELM. And today, as various states pass laws around the country to further restrict and ban abortion, the DELM is back. So when I was trying to learn more about the DELM, I was referred to this woman who I will call Ellie. She's got her own business in reproductive health. So I went out and met her. And she was just getting over COVID. (laughs) And she was also concerned about having me over to her place. She just didn't want anything to be traceable because she worried about harassment or even violence from anti-abortion extremists. So we ended up in this really strange situation where we were sitting on a beach. (laughs) Wouldn't be my ideal location to start. Um. It was like she was laying out this unusual picnic because there we are on the beach. You know, maybe... Ten yards away, there's two teenagers practicing volleyball. There are people walking their dogs. There are pelicans. It's cold. I'm freezing. Then it's really windy, and we're sitting there. And she um, starts showing me how to build a DLM. Yeah, so I brought a bunch of stuff. Just on a couple of towels in the sand. (laughs) Wow. But then the way you make it is very simple. And to make it a little more clear on how it works... I bet we could do it with a coffee here if we tried, like... She had a cup of coffee, and she decanted some into a jar and then stuck the cannula in. Very scientific. (laughs) And basically pulled the syringe, and suddenly... Yeah. Yeah. She's, you know, extracting the coffee, and it's collecting in the device, and I was just watching it happen. Wow. Yeah, and that's how that would work. And what was going through your head sitting on this beach watching coffee get slurped up by a Dalem? It was really, really odd. I mean, here we are in the middle of a pandemic using this homemade abortion device from the 70s. I mean, it did make me wonder what reality I'd ended up in a little bit. And I think whether or not this is something that someone uses just knowing that there are options in the world and that the people who came before you had other ways of managing these things. Sure. That has always made me feel less lonely or like less despondent. So the idea of the DLM for Ellie was almost this symbol. Again, are these like the most effective methods? Are these the best methods? Not necessarily. So, you know, Ellie was telling me that while this is pretty safe, it's not what she would want to use. And, you know, I did talk to a doctor who's also a researcher and professor at Stanford to ask about all this. And he assured me the DLM is safe and essentially said that abortions aren't rocket science. It's not that different from manual vacuum aspiration kits that are mass produced, that are used in doctor's offices, and that, frankly, some activists were telling me they had ordered online. Maggie Mayhem said she picked up a couple on Amazon, even though they're not available there anymore. So the DLM, in a lot of ways, is a relic from the past. And I wanted to get up to speed. I wanted to find out about 
the other methods that are out there, what methods are the abortion underground today? What are they rallying around? Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. But as you might imagine, it's really difficult to get people to talk about this stuff. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. People don't trust you right away. And nor should they. Eventually, one person recommends you to another, recommends you to another. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. They want to make sure you can protect them. What we're doing is somewhere on the spectrum of, like, straight up really illegal to somewhere in a gray area. Like, we live in a country where doctors have been killed because they provide abortions. And a lot of them knew each other. So if I do bring you in and provide information about what we're doing and how we're doing it, I'm going to need to remain anonymous. And what I saw was that people were getting really creative about getting around abortion restrictions. One of the most interesting examples of that came from this group called Abortion Delivered that ended up driving around offering a sort of abortion on wheels type delivery service. In the abortion world, it's always been this thing that folks have considered and jokingly said, when I retire, I'm going to have a mobile clinic. And And when something popped up involving vans, I was fascinated. We would be in one town for, you know, 20 minutes. And then they'd be gone. So we've seen 1,300 patients. We started in Minnesota, um, really focused on rural areas because there's so few providers in Minnesota. Then we started seeing folks coming over from the Dakotas, North Dakota, South Dakota, also Wisconsin, uh, Iowa. Everyone was crossing over to be able to get the medication. There's something very road warrior, (laughs) almost Mad Max or Station (laughs) Eleven about it. So the group went on, and and when I spoke with them, they were in the process of bulletproofing a couple of vans to send to just outside the Texas border. Literally bulletproofed. Yes, yes, yes. I wish that were able to be a euphemism in these strange times. I know, I know. Yeah. They're worried about being so close to an open carry, gun-enthusiastic abortion hostile state doing what they're doing. As they try to restrict things, that will just make us push harder. How does it all change if Roe just gets completely upended? If Roe gets upended, we will just be driving up and down the borders. And while some people are taking these sort of complex measures from the Delam to the vans, one of the newest and most accessible self-managed options right now is actually pretty simple, even though a lot of people still haven't heard of it. And that is abortion pills. One of them is called Mifepristone, which the FDA approved back in 2000. And the other is Misoprostol, which women in Brazil in the 1980s realized could be used for early stage abortions. There was a label on the side of this medication that said you shouldn't take it if you're pregnant because it could cause violent uterine contractions. So people began using it off-label to have abortions. And the medical establishment has followed their lead on that. So we've reached the point where more than half of all legal abortions in the U.S. are done with a method that uses both of these drugs. But now... Mail-order abortion drugs are now prohibited. We're in a situation where 19 states have already made it illegal for doctors to prescribe the pills via telemedicine or for anyone to send them by mail. 
There's a battle over whether people should be able to order the so-called abortion pill online in Kentucky. And nine additional states are considering similar bills. Iowa House Republicans have passed a bill which would ban mailing abortion pills. The bill in Iowa, there's a bill that would make distributing abortion pills, even if you're a doctor, punishable by up to 10 years in prison. All of this is why people in the abortion underground are now hyper-focused on the pill and making it accessible. I learned about this one international nonprofit called Aid Access that delivers abortion medication to all 50 states, and they can't be prosecuted for it because they're actually located overseas. But I wanted to understand how people are sharing information about the pills. So I got introduced to this activist named Susan Yanow. I'm really happy that more and more people are coming into this space Mm -hmm. and understanding the potential of abortion pills. And she let me sit in on one of her Zoom seminars, and she basically talks to people about how they can access and then use abortion pills without supervision by a doctor. And it's, you know, not just the stigma, but the the fear of the medical establishment to trust that we can do this by ourselves. And I just remember before the class, she instructed us all to go out and get Skittles and M&Ms. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm trick-or-treating for abortion here. What is going on? Because it's mifepristone and lysoprostol. I mean, it's M&M. And she actually had us tuck four M&Ms into what you call the buccal cavity, which is that little pocket between your cheek and your gums. And you're supposed to sit with them for 30 minutes, which uh, I know I didn't make it. I mean, I really like M&Ms, right? So I was not going to just sit with them there. My mouth, <laughs> that's like giving a squirrel a peanut and saying, hang on to that, buddy. Um, good luck there. So, um, but with the, with the pills, what I think a lot of people don't realize is even if you do go to the doctor, the doctor has you take the first pill and sends you home with the rest of the pills. So you're monitoring yourself for any complications. So this is essentially self-managing abortions anyway, right? I mean, it's more regulated. So when you, we talk about the future, essentially we're already there. What are the risks of going the self-managed route without a doctor? I think the idea of self-management isn't uh, this almost rugged American individualism. You know, you cowboy up and you go out into the wilderness and you induce your abortion and you come back. Like, it's not it's not that at all. I mean, it's the idea is you make sure that you've got people who are close to you who are around who know what you're doing. You make sure you're close to a hospital in case— Something goes wrong. One of the interesting things, though, was there are some places where people have gotten in trouble when they went to the doctor after people found out that they used abortion pills for various reasons. So if somebody goes to the emergency room, activists and others recommend that they say, I'm having a miscarriage. And clinically, they would treat you the same way anyway. So taking a step back for a minute, it seems like you came upon this story almost by accident. And then as you've been reporting this, we're still waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court. We've seen new abortion restrictions crop up from several states in the last few months. I wonder what it's felt like for you 
working on this story as the story is unfolding. Uh, it's been intense watching all of these restrictions snowballing in real time. In Florida, they just signed a 15-week abortion ban into law. We have Oklahoma and Kentucky, where abortion has now been effectively banned. So it's really coming to a head. And after talking to people who've seen this coming for such a long time and who really were willing to risk their lives and their freedom to help people get abortions. It was interesting to me because I, I think I thought we were in a place where maybe that wasn't needed in the same way anymore. And what I learned was that the abortion underground never really went away. This episode of The Experiment was produced by Gabrielle Burbet and me, Alyssa Eads, with help from Salman Ahad Khan. Editing by Michael May. Reporting by Jessica Bruder. You can read Jessica Bruder's full article, A Covert Network of Activists is Preparing for the End of Roe, on our website, www.theatlantic.com experiment. Fact check by Michelle Soraka and Yvonne Kim. Sound designed by Joe Plord, with additional engineering by Jennifer Munson. Music by Tasty Morsels and Joe Plord. Our team also includes Peter Bresnan, Tracy Hunt, Emily Botine, Jenny Lawton, and Natalia Ramirez. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Ben Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started.